2: Uh, extension of the public health order shutting down churches, in-person worshiping, uh, churches, mosques, synagogues, by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Have a listen to this now. Here's Dr. Henry extending that health order.
3: I'm leaving it open-ended. I'm not putting an end to uh, the orders that are in place now, but I will be continuously reviewing the data that we have to see if we can do it earlier than the end of the month, but I want people to start thinking about it's not going to be yay, we're out of this, we're back to normal.
2: Okay, Doctor Bonnie Henry. They're announcing the indefinite extension of the public health order, including shutting down in-person worship. Let's speak about speak about this, about this now with my guest, Robert P. Asentin. He is with the St. Thomas More Catholic Lawyers Guild of British Columbia. Please welcome you to the show, Robert. Thanks for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me on the show, Mike. Appreciate it.
2: Appreciate it a lot. What are your thoughts on the indefinite extension? of the public health order here shutting down in-person church services What are you, and your concerns?
0: Well, the challenge that we've had, um, which I think many, many um, uh, religious faithful have sort of had in their back of their mind, is the inconsistency in the application of the health orders. So the the indefinite extension sort of carries on what they've been doing and um, what the province had introduced back in November. Um, but the challenge is that we've got a situation where there are other um, other uh, things that people can do, whether it 's attend a restaurant or a bar, um, you know go skiing, do these other events which um, have had instances of higher transmission rates, at least based on evidence that we 've seen, um, while opportunities to to practice one 's faith have been um, curtailed entirely um, without there being a lot of evidence at least presented to the public to support. The the those restrictions in and, and that way, and especially when you think about it, it's um, the the right to religious practice and and um, is a charter right. It's protected under the Canadian Charter, and right. to limit that in some way takes it, it can be done. It's it's not an absolute right, right. Um, but to make sure that you're it's being limited properly, there's a a fairly robust test that the courts have have um, generally applied, and. We're not sure that that's necessarily that process has necessarily gone been gone through in the appropriate way,
2: okay, okay. there's disagreement among some church leaders on this issue. Let me play this here for you, Robert. This is Melissa Skelton, who is the Anglican Archbishop in Metro Vancouver. She was a guest earlier on the show, and here she is white uh, arguing why it's important to follow these health orders here's what she said
4: Our mission as a church you know as a as an Anglican church and as the Anglican Church in this area is, and it's about the protection of life it's about mm. uh, actually doing things that cost us a little bit in order to protect life of other people not only our own parishioners but but people in the right. community so uh, it's a it's a big job uh, assisting the churches to do that and and encouraging them to keep doing it and that's what i try to focus on
2: okay what do you think about that her making that point about it's about the protection of life of course catholic church very pro life uh, faith uh, your thoughts
0: I, I totally agree with her statement i don 't disagree with anything she said my, from my personal perspective, because absolutely the the making sure that people are being kept safe people aren 't being put at risk unnecessarily um, all of that is very important and and the practice of our faith is is important to us. Um, it certainly does um, provide a lot of value from a mental health perspective and you know a number of different avenues like that. but we do need to make sure that we 're cognizant of the of the risks that are inherent in you know, in gatherings, and the the challenge is, it's not so much whether um, I, I I don't think anyone would argue that the a church should be allowed to gather, at, and no one else should be allowed to gather. Rather, it's the inconsistency in the application. So, right, um, right. Spe- that, speaking that, of, period, a, sort of oh,
2: speaking sorry, of sorry. Uh, speaking of mental health, uh, do you have thoughts or concerns there around people? who have been unable to attend church services, especially with, you know, holy seasons coming up, like Lent and Easter? Yeah,
0: yeah I think it's—a it, it, lot of people find um, they, they take a lot of solace, they get a lot of, of, of inner strength as a result of attending mass services um, and practicing their faith. And the, in, the, in the church community, uh, actually attending at their, at their parish or wherever they, however they practice. Um, being unable to do that does take a toll on people um, and from a mental health perspective absolutely and we 've seen it um, not just in the in the faith context you 've seen it there 's been reports all over the place about um, people suffering due to the isolation uh, that these restrictions have caused there 's been a lot of mental health issues all, all over the place and the uh, the outlet that um, a lot of people have is through their faith is through that practice right. to allow them to be Uh, to to exercise that 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 element of their of their mental health to make sure that they're staying um, on in moving in the right direction in that regards as well. So I think it's an important aspect.
2: Okay, I'm speaking to Robert P.S. Sentin from the Catholic Lawyers Guild of British Columbia. Let me play another clip here for you, get your thoughts. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry. Uh, she was asked about churches being shut down under the public health orders. and Listen listen carefully what she says here, because she, she mentions uh, uh, someone I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, Pope Francis, so here she is.
3: I do not believe at all that we are affecting people's ability to, uh, under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and I, actually I was quite gratified that Pope Francis um, said that very thing this weekend. This is about taking those measures to protect people from this virus and no more so than when we come together as a community indoors right now. That puts people at risk.
2: I think she's speaking there about a a comment that Pope Francis had made that it's possible to be faithful and in communion with with the faith without attending uh, in-person church services. But your thoughts?
0: Um, again, I mean, I think I tend to. I don't necessarily disagree with with um, Dr. Henry's statement, um, and I definitely. I think. The, well, I'm not going to contradict the Pope. But that's not my place. Absolutely, and I wouldn't either. I don't disagree with that statement either. I think again, what it comes down to is um, the the when you're allowing um, you know you're allowing people to attend um, in person uh, indoors um, for to attend a restaurant or a bar or things like that yeah. um and you know I, I don't know what what numbers might might have been like for Super Bowl Sunday but I'm assuming there were a few places that were pretty busy this weekend with the Super Bowl going on um and yet we're not allowing um in-person attendance at a mass where um prior to the November restrictions getting uh being put into place the 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 cancellation of services generally the um um churches in the Catholic Archdiocese of Vancouver were um Basically, you had no more than fifty people maximum in a church, and you may know like churches, the buildings themselves are fairly large. so if you have fifty yeah. people maximum in there, they 're spread out, they 're wearing masks, there's, you know, 're doing the social distancing, you 're taking all of the, the necessary precautions that that the provincial health office had had mandated, which again were justifiable or understandable in the circumstances, um, that allowed for um, people to at least practice at some level their their faith. Um, But then now you shut that out while you still allow sort of similar gatherings, perhaps with even perhaps even more more people in some cases. That's where you get sort of the challenge. It's not uh, it's not sort of a contradiction of of any of the the statements that Dr. Henry or the Pope has made. It's more it's the the application of the actual restrictions and being consistent in that regard.
2: Okay. thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it a lot. No
0: problem. Thank you for inviting me.
2: All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Canadian cruise ship industry now already shut down and reeling from the pandemic. They get hit with another brutal blow here. The Justin Trudeau government has announced cruise ships are banned from Canadian waters for the next year. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur.
5: The ban is in place until February of 2022. Uh, That means any ship over 100 passengers can't dock in Canadian waters, and any ship over 12 passengers will be excluded from the Arctic. Now, it's a huge industry, as you said, in Canada, nearly $5 billion across the country pumped into the economy. It supports something like 29,000 jobs, and half of that money is in here in Vancouver. Each ship that docks at Canada Place brings in $3 million in direct income.
2: All right, man, that's a big hit. Millions of dollars of economic activity, thousands of jobs here on the line. The industry shut down for a year in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest, Barry Penner, the former Attorney General here in British Columbia. He's now a legal advisor to Cruise Lines International. Pleased to welcome him back. Barry, thanks for coming on.
5: You're welcome, Mike. Good to be here.
2: What's your reaction to this announcement? Was this expected by the industry?
5: We have been in talks to Transport Canada, and we're expecting an extension and there had been some discussion of June, Uh, the surprise came at the length uh, of the uh, extension of the prohibition on cruising Canada to February uh, 2022. Right. Uh, Made more surprising by the fact that, uh, you know, the vaccination is proceeding and is rolling out, and our government keeps reassuring us anyone who wants to be vaccinated will be vaccinated by September.
2: Right. So you were hoping that, you know, if that does roll out as planned, everyone gets the shot by September, that could potentially, what, save the the fall season for cruising?
5: That was the hope, that uh, there could be some kind of uh, cruise activity. There still are people planning, uh, particularly the smaller vessels of less than 100 passengers, uh, of which there are some, uh, but those are are typically higher price point, uh, offering a different type of experience. Um, So there's still some hope of that activity. But uh, it certainly has raised a lot of concern uh, throughout the industry and uh, throughout those people that work to support the industry, like the 15,000 or more jobs in British Columbia that are tied to the cruise ship uh, business.
2: Okay. People may not be aware of some of the laws and regulations around the way this industry operates. And there's a crucial one in the United States that requires foreign built ships. If they're sailing between U.S. ports, they must stop at a foreign port. And this has been fantastic for the Canadian cruise industry because it means a lot of ships are stopping in Vancouver, victorious. But it's been, it's been really big for BC. Can you explain how that works? And what is the reaction of the American industry here to Canada shutting down for a year?
5: I think the piece of legislation you're referring to is known as the Passenger Vessel Services Act. Right. Uh, often mistaken for, the, for a similar piece of legislation called the Jones Act, which came later. The Jones Act applies to commercial shipping. The Passenger Vessel Services Act, as the name suggests, applies to passenger vessels. And it's actually been on the books, some form of it, uh, in, on the books in the United States since 1886, if you can imagine. Before British Columbia was even a province in Canada, the U.S. had passed this legislation, and it was meant to be protectionist in the sense of encouraging U.S. industry to build passenger ships if they're going to carry passengers from uh, ports in the United States. Um, what's happened is a number of shipyards, particularly in Europe, have specialized in, in uh, passenger vessels, cruise ships. And, and ferries. You know, B.C. Ferries is buying most of their new vessels come from European shipyards. And the Europeans have really honed in on this skill set of making passenger vessels that people like to be on and that are, uh, I guess, reliable right. and, and efficient. Anyway, uh, many of the vessels that operate uh, in the cruise industry are built in Europe, which means if they're going to carry passengers uh, to Alaska from, from any U.S. port, they need to have a foreign stop, right? And Canada just happens to be conveniently uh, along the way.
2: Well, yeah, and I think it's crucial for people to understand that 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 law has benefited Canada greatly, and the cruise industry stopping in Vancouver and Victoria, especially for those those uh, cruise ships on their way up to Alaska, as you mentioned. Is there any possibility? Like, what what is the reaction to the industry in the United States? to this move by Canada to shut down cruising for a year? Like, is it possible that they could change that law, amend that law, and just say, you know what, if you're going to kick us out of Canadian waters for a year, then to hell with you, we won't stop in your ports anymore. We'll just change the law. Is that possible?
5: It's certainly not something that the cruise lines are advocating for, but there is uh, talk of that, um, particularly given this announcement from Transport Canada that did catch our partners off guard in alaska and in washington state yeah uh, because it, it means effectively you can't run a large cruise ship out of seattle to alaska
2: well yeah i know in in seattle i watched some of the seattle news coverage in the last couple of days about this issue and they were they were really freaked out by this move by canada because it really uh, potentially damages the seattle uh, cruise business, too. So so they're quite worried about it as well. Let me ask you about the cruise ship industry in general. I mean, you know, a lot of people will look at these boats and say, man, these things are just like floating Petri dishes. I don't, I don't want to get on one of these things and catch COVID. Can you understand the rationale for shutting the indus- industry down, like, in, in principle?
5: Well, of course, we support all efforts to combat COVID-19. And we know that there were some serious cases uh, early on in the pandemic before it was well understood. Uh, how transmission occurred. Uh, since the suspension of cruises, which cruise lines did voluntarily back in March of last year, um, there's been a lot of time and effort spent on developing protocols, uh, developing new air conditioning systems with filtration, uh, redesigning the passenger flow, etc. So some cruising has resumed on large cruise vessels in the Mediterranean, and that's actually been taking really? place since last summer. Yes, wow. it's been taking place since last summer. Uh, in the Mediterranean, and also um, in Asia. Uh, There's some uh, cruise ships uh, leaving and returning to Singapore, for example. The Royal Caribbean has the quantum of the seas, which incidentally last summer was calling on Victoria, Uh, probably summer of 2019, the last year that we had cruise traffic.
2: That's kind of surprising to hear in some ways. Have there been any COVID outbreaks in any of those cruise ships that are operating now?
5: Uh, not the ones that are currently operating. There was, with uh, the quantum disease, there was a false alarm. Uh, I think it was before Christmas. Uh, one person tested positive on the ship. Ship turned around as per the protocol, went back to port. Uh, everyone got tested, including the person that had tested positive, and then it turned out it was a false positive. So it was. Uh, it turned out he did not have COVID-19. Um, okay. But anyway, it, it highlights what the concerns are and, and how cautious everyone's being.
2: Speaking of Barry Penner from Cruise Lines International, we're talking about the Justin Trudeau government decision here to shut the cruise ship industry down in Canadian waters for a year. Uh, we're very familiar with the cruise ship business here in our province, especially in Vancouver. What about in other parts of Canada? Like, is it is cruise the cruise ship business, is that big on the East Coast?
5: There's a, a growing, or has been a growing industry on the East Coast. Uh, what's become popular are cruises, leaving from New York or New Jersey, and going up through uh, Boston and around through uh, Charlottetown, uh, Nova Scotia, Sydney, and into uh, Quebec City. Uh, those are wow. typically ten to twelve day uh, voyages, uh, and often uh, gets quite popular in September, October. Called the Fall Colors, when the right, leaves right. on the in the Maritimes are you know notoriously bright and beautiful, yeah. uh, attracts a lot of traffic. So this this announcement by Transport Canada has also caused concern in the Maritimes, because it means that while they were hoping they could have a September and October cruise season to take advantage of that those fall colors, uh, with this order in place, uh, they won't be planning for that.
2: Right. Let me a final question for you. I, I know it was the industry's hope that maybe things would turn around in the fall after everyone's vaccinated. And, and I will note that the federal government has said that they could possibly amend this plan. Uh, if it looks better in the fall. So maybe there's some hope that something could change down the road. But what would you say to people who are be very hesitant or afraid to get on a cruise ship at this time? What can the industry say, or what can you say right now to sort of reassure people? Like, especially, like, let's look ahead to the fall. Like, if people have got the vaccine, do you think it'll be safe to go cruising again?
5: We'll take our guidance from the medical experts, and cruise lines have retained uh, experts in the field that are world-renowned, that have been developing their protocols that are being put in place and have been put in place for the vessels that are currently operating. So we will take our guidance from medical authorities uh, and determine when it's safe, safe to resume cruising. But there is a lot of pent-up demand, and we know that people enjoy cruising, uh, and there are many people anxious for the day when it is uh, possible to resume cruising in North America.
2: Thanks a lot for coming on today. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Canada's response to the COVID-19 pandemic now and how the pandemic is impacting the global community, including the international competition for vaccines. And how can we get vaccines to the poorest countries on the planet? I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Stephen Lewis, he is Canada's former ambassador to the United Nations. He is the former UN Special Envoy for HIV AIDS in Africa. He co-directs the advocacy organization AIDS Free World. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Mr. Lewis, thanks a lot for coming on.
1: Thank you, Mike. Thanks very much.
2: Uh, it's my great honor to have you here. Let's talk about um, a couple of things I want to hit with you here. One is the the COVAX program that the, the Justin Trudeau government uh, taking some criticism here. For dipping into this program, this is an international program to bulk buy vaccine, and a lot of it targeted to the developing world, and Canada dipping into this here for 1.9 million shots, and Canada taking some criticism here. Do you share that criticism here? Do you think this is bad that Canada's doing this?
1: Yes, I share the criticism. I understand the pressure. Uh, The government has frankly uh, mishandled the rollout of vaccines and apparently the contractual agreements with the major pharmaceutical companies to the extent that suddenly they want to rely on COVAX to save the situation. But COVAX was never meant for that. COVAX was always meant to try to make sure that the low income and middle income countries of the world would get the vaccine, working on the assumption, I think, valid, that if you don't meet this damnable virus everywhere in the world, you're not safe. And, and, um, and Canada, it's just very, very strange that Canada has decided to do this because, in truth, it hurts the developing world. It certainly hurts Canada's international uh, reputation. And, Mike, it's not necessary.
2: Okay, I think Canada has been a bit embarrassed by this, but let me play this here for you, Stephen. This is uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and here he is defending the government uh, accessing some vaccines through through COVAX and saying this is all part of the plan. Here's Trudeau.
1: When wealthier countries invest in COVAX, half of that funding is for doses at home, and the other half is to buy doses for low- and middle-income countries. In other words... Our contribution was always intended to access vaccine doses for Canadians as well as to support lower-income countries.
2: Okay, so he's saying there that, look, this is all part of the plan, that Canada was was, was eligible to get this vaccine through this program. Your thoughts?
1: Well, it may be part of Canada's plan, but it wasn't ever the part of the overall view of COVAX. COVAX was always seen as a rescue mission for the billions of people in the developing world who would not have access to the vaccine. Mike, there are several billion people still not covered by any prospect of receiving the vaccine. COVAX is three to four billion dollars short. If Canada wanted to show that it was really a leading nation in terms of humanitarian activities, it would say, look, we understand South Africa, for example. You've got a terrible scourge on your hands. You have to meet it. We're not going to take two million doses away that might be used in the developing world. I think it's really a matter of... Essential morality, Mike. You, you make a decision as a country. Of course, your own people are fundamentally important, but you're also part of a global community in a global public health crisis, and you make your choices, and Canada is making the wrong choice. The Prime Minister is right. When he announced this back on September 27th, he said it was $440 million, and $220 million would go to the drugs for Canada. And very few people picked it up at that point. It's only now that he's exercising that that he's subjected to criticism because no right. one really expected Canada to do it.
2: Do you think, though, that generally speaking, in public opinion in Canada, most Canadians are anxious to get this vaccine as quick as possible? And we've seen a disruption in the vaccine supply here in the last couple of weeks. I wonder if most Canadians would say, you know what, we'll, ta- we'll take this vaccine whenever- wherever we can get it.
1: Yes, I think you're probably right, and I'm sure my voice is a minority opinion, Mike, because I've lived my life as a minority opinion. But I, 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 do, I do think that there is another mistake in terms of the availability and distribution. If we could just pull ourselves back for a moment, yeah. several hundred thousand doses of Pfizer are now expected next week. More more in terms of several hundred thousands expected the week after in February. Then there are millions of doses coming in March. Similarly, Moderna will be back on track. Canada also has contracts with J&J, which is now up for approval, Johnson & Johnson and Novovax. In other words... We have pre-purchased, as you know, more doses per capita than any country in the world, and they're going to right. start pouring in in March. We don't have to raid COVAX. We will have enough.
2: Okay, one more clip I want to play here for you, Mr. Lewis, and the government uh trying to convince the the opinion that they're doing the right thing here they're not breaking any rules in this COVAX program this is Steve McKinnon he was a guest on the show here last week he's a liberal MP he's the parliamentary secretary for procurement and here he is defending this this uh, decision by Canada to access these vaccines And he says look this is what COVAX was set up to do here he is
5: this is what COVAX is it is a buying group For wealthier countries, so that we can create leverage with pharmaceutical companies to supply vaccines to less well-off countries.
2: Right. So he's saying that these wealthy countries get together; they have leveraging power. They get leverage their power to buy vaccine, and they then they share with the rest of the world. Doesn't mean they give all the vaccine to the developing world. Some of it goes to the wealthy countries too, right?
1: Well, that was not the original intention of COVAX. The original intention of COVAX formed by WHO and the Global Vaccine Initiative was to make sure that somehow, given all of the pre-purchasing by the wealthy nations of the world, somehow there would be money available to purchase drugs for low-income countries. At the moment, Mike, we're looking... In 2021, the low-income countries of the world will be lucky to vaccinate one out of every 10 people. It's really appalling because those variants that we're familiar with can transfer to Canada again in the future. So since we are going to have enough doses to handle things without COVAX, why would we insist on pursuing it?
2: All right. Speaking of Stephen Lewis, former UN Special Envoy for HIV-AIDS, Let me ask you about the patent protections for vaccines. It seems like the big pharma here making a lot of money here on these vaccines. Do you think that those patent protections should be stripped so that the world can make these these vaccines in a generic fashion and make them cheaper? Uh,
1: absolutely, as we did with the antiretroviral drugs for AIDS and saved millions of lives in the process. The the, uh, generic manufacturers were located primarily in India, but we reduced the prices from $12,000 per person per year to $350 per person per year and down to $100 per person per year. So that's the remarkably dramatic things that generic drugs can do. But even more important, Mike there is a great effort being made at the World Trade Organization by South Africa and India and 99 other low-income and medium-income countries to say, look, suspend the patents for these pharmaceutical companies just for the course of the pandemic. Then you Mm -hmm. can reinstate them. But for heaven's sakes, let us have the opportunity to reduce the prices dramatically. The pharmaceutical companies won't let us. Mike, I've, I've, I've sort of lived a long number of years watching these international issues. I can't get over the fact that drug companies are deciding whether people live or die. Mm. Not governments, not the United Nations, not even academic institutions. Drug companies are deciding what they'll sell the drugs for, how much profit they're going to make, whether the drugs will be available And all or a great portion of the money that went into the discovery of the drugs comes from the public purse. I don't Mm. get why we have surrendered uh, our control to drug companies.
2: Okay, well, uh, is it not, though, a cold, hard fact that, uncomfortable as it may be, that a profit motive by these companies is one of the reasons? That we've been able to develop these vaccines so, so quickly. I mean, these companies may be making a lot of money and maybe there's some profiteering going on, but they sure got these vaccines developed super quickly. Is that because they knew they were making money?
1: But they didn't get the vaccines developed super quickly. It was in the case of uh, AstraZeneca. It was Oxford University, which primarily did the discovery. In the case of Pfizer, uh, the German side of Pfizer received 400 million euros for the German government. Much of the discovery, Mike, was done by public money. Yes, Uh they want to make a profit. It is estimated that Pfizer is going to make 60 to 80 percent profit uh, what the what the low income countries are saying is look you can make 5%, 10 15% profit. We're not denying you a profit, but this is a pandemic like nothing else in the world of public health in the last 100 years. For heaven's sakes, don't exercise your patent rights in a way which will deny coverage for the world. Right.
2: I think a lot of people might agree with you here that if we could strip those patents and make these vaccines generically around the world, you make them cheaply and we could vaccinate the whole world, is it really possible to do that or is that just kind of like a a a dream like how how would that be done could the united nations get involved and do something to make that happen how would that happen
1: Actually, the United Nation, well, really the World Health Organization could affect it, uh, could make it happen. It turns out that the Russian drug, the Russian vaccine, rather, Sputnik, it's called, is 91% effective. It's now been peer-reviewed, and Russia is uh, is already entering into contracts with 20 different countries. And the Chinese vaccines, one of them at least, looks as though it is over 90% effective, and we have all of these other countries in the, uh, all these other companies in the rich countries that have a similar effective rate. So if we stoked up our manufacturing and distribution capacities, I think we could handle the entire world. But the problem is one of funding, and the problem is one of patents, and we shouldn't allow COVAX to be diminished of right. its capacity.
2: Last question for you, Mr. Lewis. In your past uh, past role as a UN Special Envoy for HIV/AIDS—you've you, seen the scourge of these diseases, especially in the developing world. What are your thoughts on on COVID nineteen right now, especially as it applies to poor, poor developing countries around the world? Like, how how concerned are you about the situation right now?
1: Oh my God, uh, Mike! It's 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 really awful. Uh, I I read a lot of the material that comes in, particularly from a continent like Africa. Uh, the the health systems and health structures are being eroded by the intensity of the demand from COVID nineteen. Uh, there's not enough money for the other infectious diseases, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. There's a tremendous disruption in services, whether it's vaccinations for children for something like. Like measles or sexual and reproductive health for young women and girls it, it's just astonishing the ravages which covid-19 is uh, is exacting and i'm speaking of the public health side of it think of the uh, of the economic disrepair that has resulted the 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 Low-income countries have their economies set back hugely by the impact of the lockdowns. So it's going to take the world a generation to work its way out of this, frankly, Mike, and we shouldn't complicate it further by compromising access to the vaccine.
2: It was my great pleasure to have you on the show today. I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on.
1: You're very kind. Thank you so much.
2: All right, welcome back to the show. Do you have loved ones in long-term care? Have you been allowed to visit them during the pandemic? Many seniors are deteriorating while separated from their families. The campaign for increased long-term care visits is gaining steam in British Columbia. Let's discuss now with my guest, Brenda Brophy. She is an advocate for long-term care visits. She has been caring for her mom, Dot, who has a birthday coming up. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Brenda, thanks for coming on again.
4: Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me.
2: You bet. Thank you. Let me just check in with you uh, on how your mom is uh, Your mom is doing. Uh, she has a birthday coming up soon, right? She does.
4: She does. It's uh, eight weeks yesterday, I believe. She will turn 101.
2: 101. Okay. I love it. That's great. And can you just <laughs> briefly tell your story about your mom was in long-term care, and I know you were struggling to get access to her and... And you decided mm-hmm. to you decided to pull her out of there, right? Could you tell me what happened there briefly? Yeah,
4: she had um, she was in long term care, and, and prior to the pandemic, she had started to lose weight and was declining. And while they tried to tell me it was end stage Alzheimer's and to prepare for the worst, I didn't really see that that was the issue. So I kind of brokered a deal that I could go in and make her meals. And I did a lot of research on the psychology around dementia and how to get her eating again, because the model generally in long-term care doesn't really facilitate someone in her situation with um, with eating, basically. So a lot of seniors like her will deteriorate from starvation or dehydration. So I was having great success with that, and she had gained a fair bit of weight And then the pandemic, of course, hit. And that was one of my first thoughts was, oh, no, I wasn't allowed to bring food in. I couldn't drop it off. I knew that things were going to decline. And sure enough, they did. So like everyone, it was understandable for the first couple of months. And then by the time... Um, June came along, um, they they kind of had, they jumped again a little bit and allowed some visits at her facility in June. And the first time I saw her, she only weighed 68 pounds. She was like a skeleton. Wow. Oh. And uh, I, I raised the alarm bells and I requested formally to become an essential visitor because I had read through Dr. Henry's policies. It wasn't in order, but it was policies on prevent, um, prevent, preventing um, COVID in Um, congregate settings like long-term care and what an essential visitor was. And I was denied. And then when I appealed that, I I said, well, there must be a way to appeal this. And I did what they told you to do. Um, And then a person from Island Health told me that my, it was determined that my mom wasn't palliative and unless she was actively dying, I would never be granted essential visitor status simply because she had lost so much weight. So I fought that battle. I lost, I, um, I was told there was two levels of appeal. There was not. And then throughout the summer, again, um, finally when I could see her, it was 45 minutes every two weeks. And then wow. by the end of August, I knew that um, if I didn't get her out, I tried again to become an essential visitor. And by then, her cognitive decline was um, was evident along with um, drastic weight loss. So I moved her out because I, I knew that I didn't have time for a lot of fighting and process. Um, which is right, what so families are still facing.
2: Right, so she is living at home with you now? Mm hmm. Yeah.
4: And I'm happy to report that although they like to, you know, it was a bit condescending, well, Brenda, get prepared. Your mother's end stage dementia. Although, interestingly enough, she was end stage. Um, Prior to the lockdown, but then when the lockdown happened and she lost weight, I was told she wasn't actively dying. So, again, you go in these crazy circles. Um, But she has now gained eight and a half pounds. Uh, We determined through a fantastic doctor who comes to our home that she'd been on the wrong medication for about nine years. And her cognitive function, especially over the last week, has improved um, quite dramatically. So oh, she that's is wonderful. doing incredibly well. I, I have no doubt, and knock on wood, not to jinx things, but the God's willing, we will celebrate her hundred and first birthday.
2: That um, is one. That is fantastic to hear. I, I, I love it. That's that's wonderful to hear, and it's a great story. And for people listening, like a lot of people might be thinking, in the, they're in the same position. They're separated from loved ones. They they don't know what to do. A lot of people just don't have the ability to bring bring a loved one into their home you know absolutely, i mean you you're in the fortunate position you're able to bring mm-hmm. your mom home not everyone can do that so can you talk a little bit about the, the campaign for essential visits because you know the news this week is we have uh, british columbia's independent ombudsperson uh J- jay chalk has just issued a report on this and again this is another independent watchdog in our province sort of sounding the alarm on this saying look we need better rules on this because mm-hmm. a lot of people Are trying to get this essential visitor designation to see their loved ones and they're being turned down like you were. So Mm -hmm. can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how come, why were you turned down as an essential visitor? It's because your mom was not, was not dying. Is that, is that why?
4: yeah and I actually, when you asked me to be on the show, I thought I'll dig through some old emails, and um, this is a quote "A visit with your mother at this time is not deemed essential. and that they they had um, the clinical dietitian and the occupational therapist have a look at her, and it actually says, "Your mother's occupational therapist met with your mother this morning and found that she presented very bright and alert. She was sitting up in her chair fully dressed, and she was able to initiate and participate in social conversations therefore you 're denied
2: therefore you 're denied that's uh, that must be an i mean how'd that make you feel to be told to be told you can 't see your mom
4: furious and i mean i yeah. I went through what all the, so many of these family members are going through um, you know we we knew for the first while this is what it was, but I fought that battle from um, I sat down, I always joke and say it was after. Uh, you know a fairly large portion of a bottle of red wine and wrote a petition Perhaps. because I could not believe that this was being allowed to continue like how how can this continue? Um, somebody must not understand what this is doing to our loved ones and care. Somebody must not like certainly um, dr henry Minister Dix, they must not know what this is actually doing because it seemed just unbelievable to me that if they knew that they would they would in fact continue with these policies. And then, you know, through the summer it went on, we got visitation, and and Isabel McKenzie herself has spoken to this. When they brought out the visitation policy July 1st, we all cheered. It was like, thank goodness, we're going to get in. They will allow one designated social visitor. And then at the same time that they announced this, they said, we will revisit that policy in August. They never did. They never Mm -hmm. did. And, you know, families fought. We we had a rally at the legislature. There has been more petitions. Uh, folks are going to the ombudsman. There's legal action people are pursuing. You know, it just goes on and on. But, you know, one thing to remember, and I back to your point about how fortunate and blessed I am to have been able to bring my beautiful little mom home. Yeah. It's because of my situation. I am incredibly privileged to be able to do that. I have... Yeah. Um, a very supportive boss, I can work from home, I take a lot of leave without pay when I need to, I have been able to access a funded program by the government, which they keep pretty much secret, to be honest, oh. um, where I can hire my own staff. Um, and, you know, four months on, it's starting to come together for me, but it's not been without a lot of very difficult hurdles to get past. My mom's also quite easy to care for. That is not the case with a lot of seniors, especially those with dementia and Alzheimer's. You know, there's a lot of things that you have to deal with. So I know that I'm in a very small minority that can do this. And I think that's why I keep fighting, because it's not right that they're still being kept away from their loved ones in care. Um, And that's what is so frustrating about this is that it's a step in the right direction, This, this order that's come out. And I don't think people realize Prior to Bonnie Henry's new order on long-term care and the visitation, it's never been an order. It was guidelines, and they left it in the hands of the facilities and the operators and administrators of the facilities. What I feel is basically to play God. They could make those decisions with a wave of their pen or their email to tell you that you could or couldn't without any reason or rationale. And they knew that we were quite powerless to do anything. So when I was denied the second time, it's just like there's nothing else you can do. And, you know, I knew for myself, if I if I didn't take action, I would lose my mom. Um, and I was able right. to do that. But many other people have not been able to, and they have lost their loved ones. Um, right. These residents in care are dying all the time of non-COVID, preventable, premature deaths, and they're not the ones that are getting the heartfelt condolences of our health ministry. Um, and while I'm sure it's very sincere, they're worried about COVID, facilities are worried about reputation, and um, it's just infuriating that we're still having this conversation
2: it will be right. a year next month well you know seniors we know can deteriorate rapidly when they're separated from their loved ones and when they're reunited with their loved ones they can bounce back and your mother is is living proof of that all right welcome back talking about visiting loved ones in long-term care with my guest brenda brophy lots of phone calls let's go right to them karen and Surrey. hi karen
7: uh, I'm so glad you have this show on today. My mother died last week. Oh. She was in a care home, and we were denied uh, opportunities to have her uh, fed by former caregivers. The program that your, your uh, guest was talking about is called the Choice for Support for Independent Living, and my mother qualified for four years. We kept her in her own home for four years, but eventually had to put her in a care home because of COVID, we weren't denied to see her. She deteriorated. But finally, I got to go see her. And she was skin and bones. I was disgusted. She had late stages of dementia. Same scenario. If she had had her former caregivers go in and feed her, who are retired, they are former nurses in the Philippines, and they are totally qualified, I think she'd still be alive. And I'm just wow. listening to the story. It was heartbreaking. And i thank you for coming on and exposing this because it's so unfair so many seniors in that home when i walked in they look so sad
2: karen thank you for your call you're breaking my heart here listening to you and i'm sorry you you lost your mom um brenda i mean you've you've heard hundreds of these type of stories i'm sure but your thoughts
4: yeah and my deepest condol- condolences to you karen yeah. i uh that's hard to listen to, but I yeah. hear these stories all the time. like I said, I started a group, and we've got so many people and all these stories every day. Um, this is not unique, but it doesn't make it any less important and heartbreaking. And you know, like I said, a year on, now we have this focus, and we have an actual order which makes it legally binding that they need to, you know, um like the ombudsman is saying, there needs to be timelines and written rationale. I read that, and I think, you know, do you think? and we're a year on why wasn't this done sooner they've they've known since the summer that we needed to have something besides a policy where the care facilities could just make arbitrary decisions and play god with this and we've had no remedy
2: that was the biggest problem is it seems to be a very inconsistent application of these rules it seemed to vary from home to home let's go to judy
4: yeah totally inconsistent
2: totally let's go to judy on the line in langley hi judy
6: uh uh, hi thanks for having me on um my dad passed away in care um about two and a half months ago and he i think i believe that he died of of boredom and and he deteriorated because he had no social interaction um in, in the last few months my mom was able to go in and visit with him um once a week for 45 minutes and we did ask if we could um have more um visits with my dad and we were denied and my brother and i had a meeting with my um Uh, my dad's uh, doctor and we were told that he he was declining and we did ask if we could uh, have more visits and we were and we were denied Um, and my dad um, he was there mentally he was there he knew what was going on but he was just so bored my mom would go and visit with him um, every day uh, before the lockdown, and, and he was doing well. And then the lockdown happened, and he just deteriorated so quickly.
2: Right. Uh, right. So, Judy, thank you for the call. I'm sorry you lost your debt. Uh, you know, one of the things, we've only got two minutes left here, sadly, Brenda, but one of the things that I think is interesting about this is quite often people are asking, when they're asking to go in for an essential visit, quite often you are you got personal protective equipment to the max, you go straight to your loved one's room for the visit, as opposed to, you know, the the loved one being wheeled to a window. Um, yeah. For a window visit and potentially being exposed to other people as they as they're taken to the window, you know, I've often I've often thought it sounds pretty safe if you've got PPE and you go straight to the room. But your thoughts? We just got a minute. Here. Yeah,
4: and you know, that's that's part of it too. Is there's even though we've gotten a little step closer, at least there's some process and they're forcing some transparency and accountability. What does yeah. a quality visit look like? It's not a supervised visit behind plexiglass. Um, let people into the rooms with PPE and screening the same as staff so that there can be quality. And there should be no restrictions on frequency and duration for essential visitors. They're there for a reason. It's
2: called essential. Let's squeeze in one more call here. Jane in Richmond. Hi, Jane. We just got a minute left here.
7: Hi there. Um, I'm in Richmond on my way home to Surrey. I just v- visited my sister who is 96 in a care facility, and I'm clearly one of the more fortunate ones. I have been able to visit her since last summer. Out when we were, I was outside, she was inside, through plexiglass, etc. But now I actually go and visit her inside. I'm gowned, all the PPE, all that stuff. We're both masked i get to hug her she's now knowing me she didn't know me at first but this morning uh she said who am i hugging and i said you tell me and she said my name and so my visit's have just been absolutely um, wonderful experience to see and she's well taken care of but her facility is is smaller and so maybe that also makes a difference i really don't know but i'm very feel very blessed that i can go and see her i'm one designated visitor in the family and i get to come and see her and hug her every when i can
2: Jane, thank you for sharing that, and I'm glad we are able to end on an uplifting story like that. It's wonderful to hear that you've been reunited with your sister. Brenda, I continue to salute you and the great work that you're doing and standing up for families. Thank you for coming on the show once again today.
4: Yeah, thanks for continuing to keep this
7: conversation going, Mike.